0: Some people like fantasy stories, like them so much that as a culture we're spending, oh, I don't know, have already paid about $1.4 billion at the box office worldwide this year to see a fantasy story made in support of a Mattel toy named Barbie. We all can think of a favorite bedtime story, Harold and the Purple Crayon, or Where the Wild Things Are. It's often said of us human beings that we are a storytelling race, the call of the story The prehistoric campfire where stories were acted out. Huge industries today have been built up just around celebrity stories. Or how about sports? The news scores results. The stories, we remember, from our own athletic exploits, however scanty they may be. In my case, stories, 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 stock stories. Yep, every stock tells a story. As investors, we get to know our company's mission, maybe know their marketing tagline. That's a story, by the way. We follow the share price. We experience highs and lows, sometimes dizzying highs, or cavernous lows, sometimes both. Our experience as investors gives us the long view, the foolish view, capital F, acquaints us with great prosperity-creating stories, especially look across a portfolio, look up and down your brokerage statement, and I bet you see stories. Well, for the eighth time in this podcast's history this week, we focus on telling stories. Now, we're a stock market podcast, so these are stock stories. Visiting me around the campfire this week are five talented Motley Fool contributors, each of whom has a story to tell. Five stock stories to make you smarter, happier, and richer only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner.
0: Ah, yes, the sound, as we say, of rules being broken. I know that window-shattering sound can be disruptive for some. We've gotten mailbag notes about that in the past. We even turned it down a notch so that the version I think that you're getting in 2023 is not so disruptive as it was in 2015, but never mind about window shattering, because this is the more stress-reducing sound you're going to be hearing often in this week's podcast, this. More about that in a sec. Authors in August, a a one-of-a-kind mailbag last week reminds me to mention that we have a wonderful, not just author, but thinker on the podcast next week, and that's Arthur Brooks of Harvard University, most recently teaching fame author Arthur Brooks' his columns in the Atlantic on happiness. He and I are going to be talking about his new book with Oprah, which is its own thing. But I I read a wonderful book called Love Your Enemies in 2019 that he wrote. We're going to be talking about the state of our country in some ways, but really the state of our hearts. And I'm looking forward to joining in with Arthur Brooks and you next week. But today, not to straight too far from our campfire, which is Rule Breaker Investing. We're headed back to the campfire, back to the stock market, back to the campfire around which we talk about the stock market this week. Before we get started, I want to mention that we'll be reviewing five stocks indistinguishable from Magic. Uh, I'm going to stuff that into the mailbag at the end of this month. But just last week, those five stocks, that five-stock sampler, Finished out, and we'll be reviewing some of the lessons and, of course, the numbers. But I'm going to do that at the end of this month and stick to just stories this week. Now, this week, I've asked my friends and fellow analysts here at The Fool to tell the story of some stocks, not story stocks, not necessarily, but the linguistic reverse stock stories. It's something we do on this podcast. This is volume eight, in fact. All previous volumes in this series are worth listening to, I hope. And this week's podcast stands shoulder to shoulder with all past ones. Every story is new. As I mentioned earlier, I have five fools queued up. Looking forward to sharing them and their stories with you for some education, amusement, and enrichment. Now, they're not just going to be talking about the company, which is so often how we think about investing with Rule Breaker Investing. We think we're buying pieces, shares of companies We love business-focused investing at The Motley Fool, but in particular, I've asked each of our guests this week to identify where the stock was, maybe at a few different points. Include the stock in their story. So if we do our job this week, we'll be making you smarter, happier, and richer. You'll be enriched by these stories. Now, as we get prepared here, I do have an exciting announcement due to the growth of this podcast over the years. As explained last time, we can now afford more sound effects than we could in past years. My talented producer, Rick Engdahl, will be bringing some sound to the stories that you hear. Now, we're going to keep it simple and augment over time. Rick, I'm going to ask you to cue up the single sound effect that you've already previewed to set the mood for story number one. All right. That helps me to start setting the right tone here as we welcome my friend, Robert Brokamp. Robert, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Such a pleasure, David. Good to see you again and to hear you again as well. You bet, Robert. And before we get started, let me ask you what, are you, what are you doing around The Motley Fool these days? I suspect it's the same thing you said last time, but there are always new listeners.
2: I am the lead advisor of The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement Service, which is, I think, our third oldest service now, 19 years. I am a weekly contributor to The Motley Fool Money Podcast, and I am on The Fool's 401k committee.
0: Fantastic. A motley array of responsibilities, and we're so fortunate to have you fulfilling those so ably. And here you are finding yourself around a campfire of all places to tell a stock story. And I know, Robert, stock stories aren't necessarily something you spend a lot of time with as our rule your retirement expert. Along many dynamics, you don't necessarily think stock by stock, but you are this time, right? I am indeed. Before we start, have you seen Barbie yet? And if so, your one sentence non-spoiler review.
2: I have seen it. I would say if you are open-minded and like quirky ideas and concepts, you will love it.
0: All right, thank you very much for that. And how about an adjective maybe a bit interesting or surprising to describe this campfire setting that we find ourselves in right now before we start?
2: I would say bicycle-centric because I am in the process of tra- trading for RagBry, which is the annual annual ride across Iowa which is a week-long bike ride where you ride all day and you camp at night.
0: Wow. Well, here is Rick's sound effect number one to set the tone. And, Robert, as we settle in here, what stock will you be telling a story about? Home Depot. Excellent. Ticker symbol? HD. What's the title of your story? The title of my story
2: is Dripping My Way to a 34 Bagger. That
0: sounds very promising. Robert, get us started.
2: Well, David, and listeners, once upon a time, I had more hair. In fact, it was many years ago, 1997 or so, I was 28 years old, teaching English at an elementary school in Washington, D.C. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was living in an expensive city. I already had a kid at that time, so I figured I should get educated about personal finances. So I began to use a relatively new thing called the Internet to learn as much as I could about personal finances and investing. In fact, I stumbled across a then-newish site called The Motley Fool. David, I don't know if you remember, this is about the time we first met at a book signing at the Borders Bookstore in Alexandria, Virginia. I
0: do remember that very night and that very moment, and it's such a delight to reflect back on. I
2: still have my signed copy of The Motley Fool Investment Guide from from that time. Anyway, so this was also the thick of the dot-com bull market, right? So, the S&P 500 was returning between 20% and 35% every year from 1995 to 1999. So, I was very eager to start investing. Now, back then, you still had to pay commissions to buy stocks, anywhere from $10 to $50, depending on your broker, which, you know, that could eat into your principal if you were just investing small amounts of money, as I was doing back then. But, I learned about programs called Direct Stock Purchase Plans and mm. Dividend Reinvestment Plans, more commonly called DRIPS, that allow you to buy stocks directly from the company with no commissions. Um, so I decided, since I didn't have a whole lot of money, that this was the way for me to go. So I took a look at all the companies that offered these kind of programs and asked, what company do I think will be around for a long time? And I decided upon Home Depot. So I invested the minimum that you had to invest back then, $500 via Home Depot's drip plan. And I would love to tell you the exact date and the exact number of shares I bought. Um, but the transfer agent that was running the program switched uh, in 2000, and I lost the first four, three or four years of Aww. my information. So it's going to be really challenging uh, if and when I decide to sell stock. But I haven't yet, which is part of the lesson today's plan. But Let's just assume it was mid-1997, all right? So on June 30th of that year, Home Depot closed at a split adjusted $15.33. Where is it today? Well, as of this taping, it's at $328.31. So it has gone up more than 21 times in price in 26 years. But wait, there's more. That's just the price return. I have been reinvesting the dividends all along the way.
0: Uh,
2: ha ha. And the great thing about dividends is they tend to go up every year, usually at a rate that beats inflation if you choose the right company. So, in Home Depot's case, in June of 1997, it paid a quarterly dividend of two cents when you adjust it for stock splits. The most recent dividend paid in August of this year. So the dividend has grown more than 100 times in value. So since the late 90s, I've been buying more shares with the reinvested dividends, which leads to more dividends, which allows me to buy more shares, which pay more dividends, more shares. It's kind of like the dividend snowball. So put it all together. My original, I'm guessing, I bought maybe 27 shares. I now own 52. 52. My initial five hundred dollar investment is now worth more than seventeen thousand dollars. Wow! Making it a thirty-four bagger on a total return basis. Now, when I retire, I'm going to turn off the dividend reinvestment, have that money transferred to our bank account, and then hope to pay for a decent vacation or, you know, maybe a small home renovation, (laughs) thanks to Home Depot.
0: (laughs) And all off a five hundred dollar initial allocation. I love Robert that you pointed out it wasn't just. A 21 bagger, which it was just straight up price, but you added so much juice to it by reinvesting the dividends. You know, when you were talking about 1997, and part of the beauty of drips, so called back then, was you could skip commissions in an era in which commissions were very significant. These days, commissions are often at or near $0 a share. But, Robert, I assume you still like and would advise people to sign up for dividend reinvestment programs because the dividend goes right back. In, and there's some convenience there as well. Absolutely. Yes, it's automatic reinvestment. It's all automatic dollar cost averaging, right?
2: Because like your contributions to your 401k, the dividends are you regularly purchasing shares. When the price is high, you don't purchase as many. When the price is low, you purchase more. Um, Jeremy Siegel, uh, famously the author of Stocks for the Long Run, has called dividend reinvestment the um, something like the, the bear market return accelerator, because when stocks go down, the dividend reinvestment buy more shares. It has your portfolio recover faster than the overall stock market.
0: Part of the promise of stock stories, Robert, is that we draw a didactic lesson and punch it home for our fellow listeners around the campfire There's a lot here. I I see a 25-plus-year story, and I tend to fall in love with stories about the long-term and persistence and patience and sometimes just forgetting you even had the position and discovering what it's worth. So that's part of what I see in the story, but there are a number of things to highlight. What is the didactic lesson you would like us all to take away as we stare deeply into the campfire looking for truth? The lesson I would say is that investing
2: even small amounts can pay off. I remember when I was in my classroom printing out The Fool's 13 Steps to Investing Foolishly on a dot matrix printer, another teacher came up to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm starting to learn how to invest. And the teacher said to me, you can't invest, you don't have enough money. But Mm. if you just put in small amounts of money on a regular basis, give it 10, 20, 30, 40 years, even 50 years, and we have long-term time horizons because we have to think until the end of our lives, really, for our entire portfolio, it can really add up.
0: Fantastic. I can't imagine a better way to start this volume, Volume 8 of Stock Stories. Robert Brokamp, thank you so much for joining us. And full on, my friend. Full on to you as well, sir. But wait, before I let you walk away from the campfire, we need to preview, Robert, that last year, around the day of Halloween, you and I did a memorable podcast. You were telling scary stories, in this case, about often wills and estates and people, famous people, who didn't actually make a will. Those were scary stories, so scary at such the right time of year. We said together, let's do it again next year, Robert. You will join me in mid-October some weeks. Hence, we will do our second volume together of scary financial stories. Do you already have one or two in mind, and I'm not asking you to tell them now? Oh, I have some in mind, and I, and I assure you, they will be frightening. Excellent. I look forward to you scaring the heck out of us around six weeks from now. Thanks so much, Robert. All right, on to stock story number two. Bill Barker, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: And a delight to have you. This is, I think, your first time around the stock story campfire for Rule Breaker Investing. And Bill, I'm curious, what's, what's an adjective, maybe an interesting or surprising adjective, that comes to mind in this campfire setting?
3: Uh, far from surprising, but I mean, i spend spent time up in the Adirondacks, uh, family has a place there and, and almost everything is referred to as campy, uh, Excellent. It, it goes with the atmosphere. So I, there, I this think... is not uh, very thoughtful or inventive,
0: <laughs> Campy is accurate. Campy is accurate. Thank you, Bill. And, and in fact, Rick is making things slightly campier as we speak by threading in that second sound effect with your second story. And as as he's doing that, Bill, what are you doing around Fulham these days? Give us a one sentence who you are in Fulham.
3: Uh, after many years in asset management, uh, I'm back on the uh, publishing side, working primarily on the uh, small stock uh, service, uh, Firecrackers, and uh, working with Bill Mann, who I've worked with uh, many times in many different places, and uh, uh, with uh, with Tom. Uh, Wonderful. As well.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that, Bill. Thank you for all that good work. And not to throw you off your game too much, but have you seen Barbie? And if so, how about a one sentence non-spoiler review?
3: I have seen it. Uh, A one sentence review would be, I give it a B plus. That's my my review.
0: You know, B plus is good enough. Admittedly, I have not been there yet, but I look forward to seeing it, especially in light of Bill Barker's B+.
3: I don't hand out A's just automatically the way, (laughs) you know, things seem to be going more and more. Uh, A B-plus is a good grade. Back in our day, you went to class, you worked hard, you got a B-plus in a a subject where there was honest grading going on. That, That was not a bad grade at all.
0: Heck yeah. All right, let's get into your stock. What stock will you be telling a story about?
3: I'll be telling you a story about XPO Inc.
0: Ticker symbol XPO. Pretty at Ticker sure.
3: symbol XPO.
0: And Bill, what is the title of this story?
3: I guess the title is Undeserved Good Fortune. Let's huh. go with that. Once upon a time, okay. This is a stock that I came to meet for the very first time back when I was doing asset management. And I was at a, a conference, an investor conference, institutional. Thing. and the format for those that don't know is you uh, if you're in the business you you try to get some one-on-one meetings with management sure. and if you don't particularly have the connections or, or or the juice to to get those one-on-one meetings you you sit in um, presentations uh, this is in my asset management days and I am watching a number of presentations uh, that companies give 40 minutes. 25 minute PowerPoint then 15 minutes Q a from sure uh, and it was a small stock conference uh, primarily and I didn't have a lot of uh, one-on-one meetings with management this day so I'm sitting there going through the the conference schedule picking out the companies that I want to hear based on what I know about them and there comes a half an hour 45 minute block where I don't know anything from any of the four companies giving a presentation. Hmm. And there are four different rooms, and so I just sit in my seat. I, I I was there for a company I was interested in. The next company is going to be XPO Logistics. I couldn't <laughs> care less. I've got no interest in the business, and I just don't feel like getting up and moving. I mean, it's the- not
0: like the most inspiring corporate name either. I mean, if it had some campy fun name, you might have been interested. But it was XPO Logistics. That doesn't XPO help.
3: Logistics, and I just thought, well, you know, here's a chance for me to catch up on my sleep or something. And the presentation was uh, very persuasive. They were early, early, early on in the days, Bradley Jacobs uh, was uh, the CEO and he had taken over the company and had a history of rolling up companies. He'd done it with um, United Waste and United Rentals. And now he was going to roll up the uh, truck brokerage industry and it was it was the first inning. It was the top of the first inning. The company was doing less than uh, three hundred million a year in sales, and they wanted to be doing uh, several billion within two years, three years, whatever it was. It was just a, a, a ridiculous, a ridiculous promise. And uh, so I sat through it, took some notes, did my homework uh, after, and was impressed with uh, Jacob's history. And uh, this was in my asset management days, and uh, we, we did a small position in the company in the early days, and we watched it uh, essentially go from 300 million in sales to about 15 billion in <laughs> in four years. They they, they went wow. 60x, and this was not the kind of it was a roll up. So they they were not believe me, the stock price did not go 60x because they had to raise money. They had to issue more equity they had to take on debt they had to get the money to buy all the pieces of, of this puzzle that they were putting together and so the stock when i met it uh, in that conference room was uh low teens 12 14 something like that uh four years later it was in the 50s uh in 2017 so now we get to some other parts of the story in 2017 it goes from you know, the 50s to about the high 70s and then a rumor comes out that Home Depot was going to buy it to stop Amazon from buying it and this is a logistics company Home Depot has got some logistics work but they don't need uh, uh you know the size company that XPO was for their own uh, logistics needs. And so it didn't make a whole lot of sense. It made sense that Amazon might take it over. Uh, but the stock, you know, went from 70 to a hundred, something like that on this rumor, everybody denied it. And of course, nothing ever came of it. About a year later I'm sitting around. I was lying around actually because I just had uh, my Achilles, uh, surgically Ouch. repaired. So I was in bed in a cast and story comes out that a, sh- a short seller has got a report on XPO, and it it gets like cut in half. You know, this is about a year later. From about one ten, you know, ends up down around forty fifty. Wow. So, you know, that that was about four or five years ago. In, in the year since, it's visited a lot of interesting places. It's split up into three companies. Uh, it's now XPO. RXO and GXO. If you take all those and add them together, uh, it's worth about 150. Um, if you held on to everything throughout the whole time, so you know it's 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 been been about a 10x uh, in the last decade, 11 years. So
0: and all, Bill, because you just sat through a presentation at a conference that otherwise you would have been on your phone on.
3: I, I just I would just as likely in my case have been out in the lobby getting coffee. Uh, <laughs> as you could you're watching me. I'm drinking coffee right now. I'm pretty much always drinking coffee, so my coffee bug must have been filled uh, as the meeting started, uh, and it was just pure luck because it was not in an industry that I was following, uh, nor would a roll-up company in general, no matter how aggressive. Uh, the promise and the opportunity would be in an unconsolidated industry. It's just not the type of thing normally I would be uh, following.
0: Well, I'm about to ask you for the didactic lesson, the key takeaway that makes stories memorable and productive for listeners. But before I do that, roll-ups just in general. We've seen this happen across a whole bunch of different industries. Somebody starts thinking, I can be acquisitive. I can roll up the entire industry by just buying everybody out, I usually think of them as not a great model. It feels stressful. And as as a conscious capitalist who likes to think everyone's winning and being treated well, often there are lots of layoffs around these kinds of things. So I'm not a huge fan of roll-ups, Bill, but you just told a story of a very productive winning company and investment in a roll-up that has been a serious home run.
3: Uh, I agree. I'm not a fan of roll-ups in general uh, and and would advise that uh, people treat them uh as uh, no better an opportunity than than anything else uh but because of the history of jacobs executing and and rewarding shareholders that part in particular not just doing a roll-up where management enriches itself by right. growing a company 60 times and paying itself 60 times what it started out paying with but the the stock you know needs to be uh, reflecting that the equity shareholders are, are benefiting. And, and he has uh, done that three times. And so, I mean, I, I think the lesson here, other than stay in your seat or keep your eyes open, uh, is is watch uh, watch Jacobs because he's pretty much extracted himself from the XBO story. And I think he's got one more of these in him. And uh, I would be very interested to, to follow along again if, if the opportunity comes up.
0: Well, you have all of us watching, and I love that example. It's the invest in the jockey, not the horse, and pay attention as the jockey hops off the horse. Pay attention to the jockey. Sometimes people get carried away with the race or start overrating the horses, but the humans that are running things, that are making the decisions for the horse leading to results in the race, that is very worthwhile doing, especially when you find a good jockey. So, Bill Barker, thank you for that. Campfire story number two on this week's podcast I pre invite you back to our next campfire whenever we hold it.
3: That'd be great. I would look forward to coming up with another story with a a different lesson uh, because there are so many out there.
0: You've got a lot in you. Bill Barker, thank you so much. Full on. Thank you. All right, on to stock story number three. Kirsten Garrett, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for having me, David. It is your first time around our Stock Story campfire, and I'm already hearing that Rick is adding a key third sound into our audio setting. You and I, Kirsten, may or may not be at a real campfire, but how about an adjective? Maybe a bit interesting or surprising to describe this campfire setting that you find yourself in.
1: Hot. It is 98 degrees outside, and we're at a campfire, David. What are we doing? Why are we
0: doing that? It's a, good, it's a good question. Speaking of doing, what are you doing around Fulham these days, Kirsten?
1: I'm working on over on Stock Advisor, and I'm also contributing at Interconnected Opportunities, kind of focused on essentially anything connected to cloud. That's what we do over there. Love it. Thank you for both. Have you seen Barbie yet? And if so, your one-sentence,
0: non-spoiler review.
1: I have seen Barbie, and I will say, if you haven't, you don't need to see it in theaters.
0: That's helpful. That is helpful.
1: I hope that's not a hot take.
0: Bill Barker, who just left before you, gave it a B+. So I was starting to think I should go to the theater, but I'm happy not to go to the theater, but still watch it in streaming inevitably down the road. Thank you for that, Kirsten. Let's get into your story now. What is the title of the story you'll be telling us?
1: So the title I have is My Biggest Mistake Was My Biggest Lesson. That is a promising
0: title, and we're going to reserve, we're going to hold off on what the company name is, because that might be part of the story. Kirsten, take it away.
1: Okay. Once upon a time, the year was 2014, the European Space Agency landed our first probe on a comet. The World Cup was in Brazil, Germany won. And I was being told that I could divert up to 10% of my paycheck into my company's discounted stock purchase plan. Hmm. And that company was Schlumberger. The ticker is SLB. And I started there in late 2013 when the stock was around $90 a share. I remember in my onboarding in there, in my first week, one of the presenters uh, had pulled up the website and the stock prices right there on the front page. And they were commenting something like, wow, $90, look at that stock run. And I didn't really know anything about investing at that time, but the benefits overview that i was receiving about how i could divert some of my paycheck into that stock for a seven percent discount by the way paired with the general sort of buzzing sentiment about how well the company was doing just sounded like a fantastic idea to me so i bought in and the stock price just kept climbing from 90 dollars. but numbers are just numbers the actual business atmosphere behind those numbers was fantastic morale was high Motivation was generally abundant. Culture felt very strong. Everything felt like a win. Um, But let me back up for a second and tell you what Schlumberger does. It is an oil field services company. Uh, It offers basically any service that you can imagine. Drilling, well logging, which is kind of like data collection in the oil field. Hydrofracking, extraction, software solutions. Anything that an operator might want, Schlumberger will do. Well said. now, Now, operators are the companies that Own the wells, they make the strategic decisions about how to develop a field or when and how to produce their wells, but the service companies are the ones that will come in, that will carry out those field operations, whatever the operators tell us to do, right? So, listeners may immediately recognize something about this industry, oil and gas that I worked in, that I didn't really understand at the time as I was pouring my paycheck into this stock. And that is that it's highly cyclic. It is an industry whose fate is very fundamentally tied to the price of oil. And oil is a commodity. Most everything that influences the price of oil is outside the control of a company like Schlumberger. And so in 2014, what we were saying was an inventory surplus, which by the way, was further exacerbated uh, when economic sanctions were lifted on Iran in 2015. Mm. And their inventory came online too. So Even more inventory surplus to come. But we also had OPEC refusing to cut production levels, an overall kind of softer economy with lower oil demand, partly driven by more interest in fuel efficient vehicles, things like that. And that all led to oil, uh, the price of oil dropping from over $100 a barrel to around $40 a barrel by the end of 2015. Yeah, so the stock peaked, uh, Schlumberger's stock peaked around $118 in mid-2014. And by late 2014, the layoffs started. I worked for Schlumberger uh, as a micro-seismic geophysicist. Basically, our service was to operators was real-time mapping of the extent and the quality of their fracking operations. But it's kind of like a luxury service. So operators can forego that real-time mapping To optimize the stimulation treatment. They can't just do it and still get a bunch out of the well. So my service was one of the first on the cost cutting chopping block. So over most of the six years I worked there, the company was hemorrhaging money. Layoffs were perpetually on the table. People were always leaving. Morale was understandably terrible. Mm. And two things were happening in response. My employment was at risk. And my employment was at risk with the same company whose stock was plummeting uh, with a significant portion of my salary and savings you know, mm. tied into that. So ultimately, I was incredibly fortunate that I was not laid off. Um, around 75% of my team was. So it was a very real threat for several years there that, in hindsight, taught me a lot. Um, I shouldn't have put so much money into a single company that I did not understand. Yes, to some degree, I had sort of an insider understanding of the company, but not really. I was a scientist. I was not an analyst at the time. And to be clear, I shouldn't have invested so much, but I don't regret that I invested. Even cyclic businesses can be really great long-term investments, especially if they're oversold by others, unwilling to wait. Um, But you have to know what you're getting into to reasonably limit your exposure. And of course, I should not have allocated so much of my net worth into the same company that employed me. It is risky to tie your daily livelihood and your future savings to the same company. I don't want to scare anyone away. I think you should definitely look into taking advantage of employer stock offerings. They can be great. Um, But be smart about it. Diversify. Limit your exposure to any one company. Taking into account both your savings and your salary as part of the package.
0: You did a great job underlining multiple lessons there, Kirsten. And a couple of things I would just want to share back earlier around the campfire. Robert Brokamp was here talking about the benefits of dividend reinvestment plans, something that we certainly like at The Motley Fool, and in part because sometimes there are discounts or just the convenience of having dividends rolled back in. So you're not gainsaying any advice against using drips. I hear you saying, uh, yeah, don't put everything into your company unless maybe you're the CEO, understand everything that's happening about the industry and can predict the future. But if you're not all three of those things, diversify.
1: Yes, exactly. There are there are people for whom it might make more sense who have a better understanding of the business. If you really know what you're talking about and you have some of that information, then then sure. But I I didn't have both of those things. So what I did was risky.
0: And I'm going to ask you in a sec to punch home just sort of a final, maybe one sentence takeaway, the top lesson in your mind from what you just shared. As you think about that, I just want to reflect on you today versus you 10 years ago. You know, A lot of studies show that we as adults underestimate the amount of future change in our lives. We can look back over 10 years and say, I mean, Kirsten, I think of you as a stock analyst, but you are... (laughs) You're a geoscientist. You were working in an oil company, uh, oil field services company, 10 years ago. And just to think about the degree of personal growth, some risk that you've taken and the challenges that you face and who you are today makes me smile. But it also reminds us, who knows what any of us will be doing or thinking about 10 years from now. Again, it's easy to use hindsight, look back and say how much we changed, but we should all at every age be ready for Future change that may surprise us. So, that's at least one thought that I have as a takeaway as I hear you tell that Schlumberger story. What was the title again, and what is your didactic takeaway?
1: So, my title was My Biggest Mistake Was My Biggest Lesson. And that mistake and that lesson was essentially know the limits of your investment understanding and diversify appropriately.
0: Fantastic. Kristen Guerra, thanks so much for joining with us this week around the campfire. Thanks, David. Stay cool out there. All right, on to stock story number four. Welcome to the Rule Breaker Investing Stock Story Campfire, Mac Greer.
4: David, it's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you, Mac. And as Rick threads in the newest audio accompaniment to this week's podcast, Mac, for you, what is an adjective, maybe a bit interesting or surprising to describe this campfire setting you find yourself in?
4: Overpowering. I, I don't know if there's a Dura flame log or there's just something kicking off a lot of heat. I'm gonna have to I'm just gonna have to stand back a little. It's it's truly overpowering.
0: And I see that, and yet I think you're equal to the task. I appreciate you pointing that out. And you know, we we probably need to turn things down from time to time, Rick Engdahl. Mac, you are one of our longest-standing Motley Fool employees. You're one of my favorite fools. What are you doing around Fooldom these days?
4: David, I am a producer, so I produce our premium podcast, which includes our Stock Advisor Roundtable, as well as other premium programming. Um, very invested in our morning show on Motley Fool Live, as well as special events.
0: And I love that. And Mac, you've done a lot of those things for years, and some of those things are relatively new in the sense that premium programming is something that we've done on and off. I, did, I once did a Supernova podcast for The Fool back in the day, but highlight that for people who are not yet members of The Motley Fool. So it turns out I can get more stuff if I'm a member, and a lot of that is being produced by the talent we're speaking to around the campfire right now.
4: Exactly, David. It's like this great big secret world, Willy Wonka without some of the weirdness. So you're a member, you get premium video programming, but you also now um, can have access to our premium podcast through the magic of, well, I don't know how it works exactly, but you can take your Motley Fool account and you can link it to a Spotify account. And that way you can get a members only Motley Fool podcast.
0: Outstanding. And I'm delighted to know we're doing that and that you are headmanning that. Thank you, Matt Greer. Before we get started, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you've seen Barbie yet, and if so, your one-sentence non-spoiler review.
4: I have seen it. We saw it the second day it was out, and I would say wonderfully ambitious.
0: Excellent. We'll leave it right there. Matt, what stock will you be telling a story about this time? I will be telling about a little stock named Apple. I've heard of that company. One of my pet peeves, I've aired that out on this podcast before, is that people sometimes get the ticker symbol wrong with this one. Matt Greer, what is the ticker symbol of Apple? You want me to say A-P-P-L. I don't want you to say that. I will
4: not. I will say (laughs) A-A-P-L. Thank you. And I guess more importantly, what's the title of your story? The title is The Dangers of Early Success. Take it away. Once upon a time, Apple was in trouble, serious trouble, like we may not be able to stay in business trouble. Mm. The year was 1997. The band Hanson was setting the music world on fire with that catchy song, Mm <laughs> But Apple was in trouble. On August 6th of 1997, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs revealed that Microsoft, led by Bill Gates, had invested $150 million in Apple. Microsoft received 150,000 shares of preferred stock in Apple. So Microsoft invested $150 million in Apple. And following that deal, David, Steve Jobs told Bill Gates, and this is a quote, Bill, thank you. The world's a better place. And, well, the world became a better place for me. Because a few weeks before that deal, David, <laughs> bef- a few weeks before Microsoft invested in Apple, I, Matt Greer, had bought call options in Apple. <laughs> not it just was the stock. first time. It was the first time I had ever bought stock options. I'd been investing for seven, eight years. I bought Gap, Dell, other stocks, but I never bought options. I was young-ish. I was single. I was not risk-averse at all. So I decided to give options a try. So I don't wanna get in the weeds here, but the big advantage of a call option versus a stock, as you know, is the call option really magnifies any gains in the stock. So if the stock moves up a lot beyond that strike price, you stand to make even more money if you have the call options, which I did. And of course, if the stock is below the strike price at expiration, you, you lose what you pay. Okay, so David, summer of 1997, I buy these call options for around $1, not knowing what's going to happen. Each of those call options controls around 100 shares of Apple. Or not around. It does control 100 shares of Apple. <laughs> and I buy them because I remember thinking, you know what? How much lower can Apple really go? And options seems kind of fun. A few weeks later, Jobs announces that Microsoft's invested $150 million in Apple. Apple stock shoots up, and overnight – my options went from $1
0: to $9. That is absolutely insane, Mac. And this
4: is, you know, this is in the early days of the internet. So I remember, I think I was at my lunch break during my job in D.C., and I think I may have been on, the, on a payphone calling Schwab to get my options quote. And I was just like in total disbelief, right, as I hear that $9 price. So I sold my options and I took my profits. And David, you're thinking, so far, so good, right? So far, so good.
0: I am thinking that. Okay. I'm actually thinking, so far, so great.
4: Okay. So far, so great. So the story ends there, right? And I learned my lesson and I never buy options again, right? (laughs) Uh, Not so fast. Unfortunately, (laughs) I decided that I was good at investing in options. And I started buying all sorts of options on names like Intel and Dell. And oh, yeah, here's the kicker. I was also using margin. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. So I wanted to juice my returns. So no more of those sleepy buy and hold days. I was swinging for the fences, using margin, borrowed money to juice the returns even more. Well, David, not surprisingly, it did not end well. I started to lose money, and then I started to lose more money. And I learned eventually that I had no business investing in options. I wasn't made for it. I wasn't using options for income or as a hedge or in ways that allowed me to manage my risk. I didn't use options in any of the ways that The Motley Fool has prescribed. I was flat out speculating. I was gambling. And because my first big bet on Apple had paid off big time, I learned the wrong lesson. Mm. So that's my first big takeaway. Success can be dangerous, especially early success. Make sure you're not learning the wrong lesson. Make sure you're not mistaking luck for skill. I wasn't smart. I was lucky. Now, the second takeaway here is you can have a robust portfolio and you can have a very happy and productive and fruitful investing life without ever using options. I don't invest in options anymore. I know myself now and I can't do it. And by the way, I don't use margin either. I don't have the stomach for it. And the final takeaway, and perhaps the most important one, stay humble. If you're on top of the world today, help someone who's not. Remember, there was a day back in August of 1997 when Microsoft essentially bailed out Apple. That's the same Apple that has around a $3 trillion market cap today.
0: That is an absolutely outstanding point to conclude with. There was a lot going on there, Mac. I appreciate you taking us back to a time where, yeah we got stock quotes over the phone we would call our broker or maybe there was the touch tone opportunity to quote our stocks but certainly online may or may not have even had that yet but before there was online there were the phone quotes so thank you for that you know mac you mentioned that eventually you learned not to use options and or margin how fast did that eventually happen for you was it the big dropout of 2001-2 where you're like, I'm done here? Or did you keep doing it? Or did you stop right away in, I don't know, 1998? I think the dot-com crash pretty much finished me off
4: because that was, that was the end of it. Um, I may have bought one or so after that, but that was pretty much it, the dot-com
0: crash. But most of all, your concluding point about Apple, it is so remarkable to think back on that time. And thanks for reminding us. It was a $150 million bailout investment from Microsoft just about 25 years ago today, 26 years ago. And it's astonishing to think that Apple has the highest public company market cap in the world today, far larger than Microsoft all from a seed investment, which was a couple decades after its founding, truly remarkable. I love what Steve Jobs said, and that was a great quote. It's incredible,
4: David. And I don't mean to pile on Microsoft here, because Microsoft, you know... Has been amazing. A, they've had a great run. But, but here's a fun fact, courtesy of an Engadget article I found online. Um, so 2001, Microsoft converts all of its Apple-preferred shares into around 18 million shares of common stock. So, so 18 million shares of Apple stock, 2001. By 2003, Microsoft had sold that entire stake. So, David, I'm no math wizard, (laughs) and I don't know how many splits Apple has had since 2003. Somebody should be
0: fired for capital allocation (laughs) in the Microsoft investment department. That's what I'm hearing.
4: In that incredible world, had Microsoft held that stake, they have to be what? One of the largest, if not the largest, shareholders (laughs) in Apple?
0: Truly remarkable. Well, Matt Greer, thank you so much for joining us around this campfire and for punching on. You know, you gave several lessons, just the final thought, your final takeaway. If you were to boil it down, the didactic lesson to just one sentence or so, what do you want to leave us with as you depart this hot, campy, overpowering campfire setting? I think
4: there is a tendency when we succeed to give ourselves too much credit and to not give luck more credit. And the best protection I found against that is to stay diversified and to um, keep my positions pretty small and to realize that if something does blow up, if you have bad luck or good luck, you've at least
0: constructed a portfolio that can withstand that. That's great. In, in a lot of senses, these things work not just for investing, but also for business in our professional lives, staying humble, diversified, and, of course, in life itself. So thank you for painting each corner of the Rule Breaker Investing Room. Great to see you again, Mac. We'll have to do this again sometime. Happy camping. Happy camping. All right. And stock story number five this time. Let's welcome to the Rule Breaker Investing Stock Story Campfire, Jason Moser. Jason, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, David. And we're hearing Rick provide the final full accompaniment, really sound being fully realized for our campfire setting this week. Jason, you're getting to hear it in its full fury. What is an adjective, maybe a bit interesting or surprising, that comes to mind to you when you stare deeply into the campfire that we find ourselves sitting in front of right now. You know, David, I'm going to go with the word refreshing, and I think one of the reasons
5: why I use that is because it just, you know, this day and age, especially these last several years, we just haven't had the opportunity to work together so much, and that, I think, is something a lot of us miss. Uh, So whenever I I had to get involved in these collaborative experiences, to me, the first thing that comes to mind, this is just a refreshing change of pace.
0: Thank you. Very well said, and thank you for for being refreshing for all of us. It's great to have you back here. Jason, remind us in a sentence or two, what are you doing around the fool these days? Promote. Well,
5: uh, as, as many know, for the last five years, I've been working as, as the advisor on our augmented reality and beyond service. And then I also uh, am working as the advisor on our next-gen uh, super cycle service. And that's the one that's focused more on like connectivity and 5G-related uh, ideas. Uh, and then I get to you know continue with the, the Motley Fool Money stuff and, and helping
0: out with Rule Breaker Investing podcast and you things bet. like that along, along the way. I, th- I think man about town is fair to describe Jason Moser. around the him. It. It's great to it. have you here. And and I have to ask you the question I've asked all of my other guests because for some reason I have this on the mind this week. Jason, have you seen Barbie yet? And if so, your one sentence non-spoiler review. You know, I feel like people would probably bet that I haven't seen it. That'd be
5: fair, but I'm going to surprise them and tell you what, David, I have seen it. Um, it was something my my daughters initially went to go see, made my wife jealous, and so my wife and I had a date night one night shortly thereafter. <laughs> I, I, I will say, going into the movie, my expectations for the movie were not all that terribly high. For me, it was more about the company I was keeping. But I, I will say, absolutely, the movie exceeded my expectations. I think Ken's song was really probably the pinnacle of the movie for me. Uh, it, it's so much so, that my daughter, who recently went away Uh, to college is coming back here in the next week. And she has just told
0: me that we have to go see that movie together. She just (laughs) won't have it any other way. So yep, I did go see it. How about you? Excellent. Excellent. And I have not yet, as I previously mentioned this week, and yet I, I know I will, But whether I wait for streaming or not is is my big question. But, Jason, I will have to say I was not surprised that you see it because I know you have two (laughs) wonderful daughters. And I kind of feel like as a guy surrounded by three women and his nuclear family, you were going to see this movie at some point, somehow.
5: (laughs) A fair fair assessment.
0: All right. Well, enough about Barbie. What stock will you be
5: telling a story about? Well, I feel like years and years from now, when I'm long and gone, I I feel like the – the investing story of Jason Moser is going to be told, and, and everybody is going to make sure that McCormick is a part of that story. So, to no one's surprise, uh, talking about McCormick, ticker is MKC, not MCK, but MKC McCormick.
0: Yes. And what is the title of your Jason
5: Moser McCormick story? 90% of the flavor and 10% of the cost.
0: Excellent. Take it away, Jason.
5: Once upon a time, in February of 2010, a man named Jason Moser, a young buck, you know, a, a green, a green investor, wet behind the ears, just started <laughs> at the Motley Fool as, as as just a member of the analyst development program. Not even guaranteed a job. He had to go through his educational. Uh, it was like to boot camp, educational rigor with the company just just for just to even have a shot with a career. In 14, 14 years later, look look where he is, right? Uh, but yeah, back in two thousand and ten, February two thousand and ten, I I started with with the Motley Fool, and around this time, uh, McCormick shares were selling for an adjusted fourteen dollars and change. Now records are somewhat fuzzy because this was a little while back. Uh, But I believe we went to McCormick headquarters at some point in 2011. Now, this was just a a trip that that I and, and a couple of colleagues from work uh, decided to take one day, sort of sort of a boots on the ground field trip to get a better idea about the company and sort of what they do. And they were fairly local, right? Located up in Hunt Valley, Maryland. So for us, I did was, not
0: know that. So McCormick is in Hunt Valley.
5: Yeah. And it was so it was it was an easy trip for us to take, just a day trip. And, th- and that was the general timeframe. But you know, I was still new to the job, like I said, very wet behind the ears, learning so much. And this was really for me, it was an exciting opportunity. This was one of the reasons why I just was so excited to start with The Fool, because of these types of, of, of opportunities. And so, you know, we drove up to, to McCormick headquarters for the day. Um, we, we had a terrific time. We met with the, the CFO at the time, I believe it was Gordon Stets. Uh, we toured the whole place. This was probably a good four to five hour uh, field trip that we took. Um, and ultimately, again, this, especially at the time, this is what struck me as a very Peter Lynchian type of experience. You know, I had just read One Up on Wall Street at the time. So, I mean, it really, it really hit home for me. This is just kind of one of those buy what you know type of, of companies. And we really got to know it very well. Um, and, and what struck me was, you know, I, I, have, I have so many fond memories of my childhood learning how to cook from both of my parents. A lot of that just came from stretches sitting in the kitchen, watching my mom or my dad do whatever they were doing. They would, they would bring me into the mix and teach me how to do it. It's, it's something that even connects us to this day. And I can recall vividly opening up the pantry and just seeing stacks upon stacks of McCormick spices and, and, you know, the, the color, the logo, it all just kind of stuck with me. And, and, uh, and so this field trip was kind of Kind of something that re, reinvigorated, I guess, that interest really in not, not in cooking, but really in, in understanding exactly what McCormick did and if it was something that was, was worth considering as an investment idea. So I continue to follow it um, for for years to come. And you may you may remember on our old podcast, Margaret Fluory, one of one of Chris Hill's favorite questions to deliberate every now and then was, "What's the next Berkshire Hathaway acquisition?" And I always just Answered McCormick. There were a couple of other times I would answer other companies like Ellie May or something like that. But McCormick was kind of always my go-to because there just seemed to be so many Buffett-like qualities about this business. You know, it was reliable, steady, you know, strong returns. And uh, and I even said in April 2013, I, I even, you know, I laid it out there on Twitter at the time, David. I said, hear me now. Buffett and Berkshire will buy Spice Kings, McCormick and Company under their umbrella one day. It's too Berkshire a business not to. Fast forward to today, David. Of course, that has not happened, but I'm actually kind of grateful because that has, has allowed me to just stay on here as a, a shareholder for so long and benefit from, from watching this company grow and do its thing. But you know, it wasn't long after that, somewhere in the year 2013, where I bought my first shares of McCormick. That was somewhere. In the thirty dollars range, adjusted adjusted for today, so thirty dollars and change. Um, and, and I will mention too, by the way, just for listeners, it wasn't short. It, not not long after that, you recommended McCormick in Stock Advisor on the Team David side, and it's performed very well for you there. I think matching the market and and uh, close to two hundred percent returner there. So I so hats definitely off to you have there. never
0: been to Hunt Valley, Jason, but I do. It is a kind of timeless company doing good things in the world that I admired. And I think especially somewhere back then, I've never been a cook myself, but I started to realize, you know, spices are such an oncoming thing. I know they've been around forever, but it feels as if maybe I'm just thinking about American cuisine, but I think it's true worldwide, but I only really know American cuisine that it's just getting better and better. We have fusions with other forms of cuisine and spices. Yeah. So I think I had spices on the brain. I know you remember the classic <laughs> plastics line uh, that, that was delivered to a, a young Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. But I was probably saying spices to somebody <laughs> somewhere around then. It has been a good investment. It's it's a company that I continue to appreciate today. But Jason, it's it's an iconic one for you. For me, I'm still confused why the ticker symbol is MKC. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think we've always tried
5: to noodle that one. And I, I mean, I guess we could try to dig in and find out the history. I have to believe it has something to do with McKesson getting there first. but uh... I think so.
0: I mean, let's to be clear, McCormick, of course, is MCC. So I'm not online right now, so I'm not checking if somebody grabbed MCC. But I, I just see the K on the end of McCormick, and I think it should be on the end of the ticker. But you're right, McKesson, which is another Stock Advisor pick. Um, got MCK. But more importantly, what have you been learning? What have you learned from having McCormick in the Moser folio for, for so long? Well, I'll tell
5: you, I mean, one thing I've learned is you, just, you, you never never really underestimate where a business can go because certainly they've, they've gone well beyond just spices. I mean, with acquisitions and, and RB Foods and bringing more flavors into their portfolio, sauces, things like that. So now yeah. they own French's and they own Frank's Red Hot. Uh, Own Cholula, so this is a company that has, has certainly evolved over over time, and I think that's that's you know definitely one of the lessons I take away. But I tell you, the big lesson I take away from a company like McCormick, owning a company like McCormick, and I think about this now more than ever, really, given that you know we're not getting any younger, David. But um, I you know I didn't want to be late to the game, working on building out that income generating side of my retirement portfolio. Mm. McCormick was one company that really helped me keep that thinking alive. And it's something that, you know, talking about dividends and things like that, something my dad taught me when I was a kid. But, you know, when you're young, and they tell you you're young, you can take more risk, you have more time to make up for it. And that's true to an extent, right? But you don't want to get to that older age having just completely neglected, even beginning to build out that income side of your portfolio. And so for me, you know, I I'm glad I started thinking about the merits of owning a company like McCormick when I did and and I even feel like it was maybe a little bit late to the game on that but but you know I knew at some point the years would catch up and I'd be happy that I'd taken advantage of that mindset complementing some of those younger companies that I own with a bit of stability and income generation and so you know for me I've continued to build out that income side of my and I'll say quote uh unquote retirement portfolio and the reason why I put retirement in quotes is because honestly even now um going on 51 retirement is a word is it's not a word I even really think about I'm not looking forward to it I'm not aiming to retire but it is something I keep in the back of my mind life goes on and you have to do something at some point or another and in McCormick is one that has really helped me kind of keep my eye on that ball and it's encouraged me to continue adding to other Similar high-quality businesses that we like here at the Fool, you know, other you know stable sort of income-generating ideas that that have really helped me kind of keep focused on on that ultimately diversification that we we value so highly here.
0: Well, that that's wonderful, and you know, just checking it right now, the dividend yield for McCormick, as we speak, is right around one point nine percent. Robert Brokamp earlier really he kicked off this week's podcast with a reminder of the power of reinvesting dividends in companies like this one yes. over long periods of time. What was a 21-bagger in Home Depot for Robert is actually a 34-bagger because he consistently has reinvested his dividends. So you're right. None of us is getting younger, so far as I could tell, uh, on any given day. And setting yourself up for a stream of income later on in life with companies that will keep paying those dividends, steady eddies, like McCormick, like Home Depot, um, a great reminder to us all. And of course, a lot of listeners already are doing this, have done this for a long period of time, but we have a motley crowd out there. So (sighs) whatever age you are, I think you can take something wonderful away from Jason's story. Jason, can you remind me again of the title of your story and then give us, punch it out, the takeaway line as you think about your, this is fair, your love affair
5: with McCormick. Well, yeah. So, 90% of the flavor and 10% of the cost, and that really is just a call back to their <laughs> own value proposition. They always try to tell us about, you know, they're responsible for 90 to 90% of the flavor of the food that we're eating, but only about 10% of the cost. A so tremendous value proposition starts to make a little bit more sense as an investment. Um, and, and I think, you know, looking back to the lessons, I mean, you, you just you don't want to wait, really, to try to, to plan for your future, and I, and I think that when it comes to investing, the way the way we invest here at the Fool, you know, we preach diversification, we preach position sizing. Um, it, it's it's very easy to to think about, you know, getting rich quickly, right? But let's focus on getting rich slowly, right? It's it's a journey, right? It's it's not something that we're going to achieve overnight. Uh, this is this is something we're building over long stretches of time, and yeah. um, giving us a little bit of all of those different types of, of, of great businesses out there, it can really work wonders in the long haul.
0: Getting rich slowly is a much surer path to getting rich. It's actually a lot more fun too. You'd think it wouldn't be, but you take away a lot of the stress. You don't feel too bad during bear markets. You see them as opportunities. And you have an opportunity, as Jason has done, to build out a diversified portfolio over time. It's kind of like a garden or an orchestra. You want to have many different players, many different contributors, and watch that growth over time. Jason, thank you so much for joining us again this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Stock Stories, Volume 8. If you did, there are seven others you can listen to for didactic lessons in other companies in the past, including some of the same voices you heard this week, telling other stories around the same campfire that can keep you company. On a cold autumn night. Assuming it gets cold in autumn at some point here in the Northern Hemisphere this year, it will. Just not quite yet if you're on the East Coast this week, you get me. Also, I did enjoy our expensively post-produced campfire, setting just the right tone, making our stories more memorable. For which I'd like to thank, as I never do enough, my producer Rick Engdahl. Rick, have you seen Barbie? Uh, Yes, I have. Of course I have. Of course you have. I do have a teenage daughter, after all. <laughs> How about a one-sentence reviewer thought from you? Or you can take an extra sentence.
5: Weird Barbie is the best Barbie.
0: As somebody who hasn't seen it yet, I will take your word for it. I know lots of others are not in their head, and I'm sure in agreement. Rick, were you like a weekend one viewer? I think so. It
5: was the first or second weekend. I was there with my daughter and her friends. And yeah, the reason to see it in the theater is to see it with a theater full of teenagers pretty much throughout the entire movie. There was, there's plenty of spontaneous uh, applause and laughter in the theater. And that's what makes it fun to be there.
0: And you're right. And that's a great uh, note in favor of going to the theater. And I totally get you the, the audience, whether we're talking about a movie or a play or a comedy show, the audience or a rock concert, the audience makes such a big difference to one's enjoyment. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for the good work this week. You know, to close The reason that you and I can even read the Odyssey and the Iliad when we went through school is because there's an oral tradition that handed those stories down for centuries, which means great stories need to be memorable. I hope at least one of these was memorable for you, dear fellow Fool and listener this go-round. Thank you again to Robert Brokamp, talking about Home Depot, Bill Barker, XPO, Kirsten Guerra, her experience as an employee and investor in Schlumberger, Mac Greer, how can we forget that? Microsoft investment into Apple. And Jason Moser, 90% of the flavor and 10% of the cost. That's Rule Breaker Investing for you this week. Next week, author and rule-breaking thinker, Arthur Brooks. Full on.